Thank you for tuning in and welcome to the new Light Talk podcast, where we'll be discussing a range of subjects chosen by you, for you, uh, hosted by me, Jake Donovan. Uh, And we'll be welcoming a range of magnificent guests. And I'm really, really excited because our special guest this week is a man with a whole series of very interesting job titles. He's a journalist for Inside Over, which is an international politics and current affairs website. He has had uh, journalistic articles published in The Independent, a newspaper with which most people are familiar. He served as a Tory councillor on Witchhaven District Council from 2017 to 2019. And I'm sure he's a man of many more talents, as we might find out during this podcast. So welcome, Matt Snape. Thank Thanks you very much, Jake, and thank you for the generous inter- introduction as well. <clears throat> no worries, no worries. So, so, Matt, I think, you know, I'm, I'm trying to break the, the cycle of the normal podcast routine where the interviewer asks the interviewee a series of questions, but largely it's the interviewer telling people about the interviewee and doing the introduction. So uh, uh, before we dive straight into the myriad of COVID and politics, I think our listeners would be really, really interested to know what on earth possesses someone to go into politics, particularly someone at such a young age? Well, my journey into politics started at a very early age, when I was 11. I was captivated. You were 11? Yeah, I was captivated by... Sorry, I do interrupt then. Um, I was captivated by the events of 9-11, and... After that, I started following the news regularly, and my interest for politics just grew from there, really. And and is there a particular strand that you would be interested in? So, you know, so, so I have an interest in politics, and I'm really interested in the personality of politics, the pantomime of politics. But, but was there anything specific within that politics domain, which is a really broad domain, that would, would inspire... Uh, an 11 year old as it was at the time um to, to to want to actively be involved in the political arena at that at that age i was just more interested in international politics in general so particularly mm. 9-11 it was likely covid19 today it was an event that changed the world for good so i was very interested to know why we got to that stage in 9-11 how that links to american politics as well so I was just more interested in the broad pick. I was just learning at that age because obviously it was such a young age. Yeah. And then, yeah, and then I did my politics A-level at 17 and that's why I developed more of an interest in British politics and finally got involved with the Conservative Party at that age as well because my local MP invited me to join the party. So that's where it all stemmed from, really. So that's the killer point. Why the Conservative Party? Why are you a, to- a Tory a good question um i think a lot of it's down to do with background so my dad was a, a yuppie basically who left school in the 80s and went on to make success for himself during the thatcher years and you know he pretty much represented uh, what the thatcher years were all about and i found that very inspiring from a young age so there was the background as well and then there's more personal reasons as well so i had a learning difficulty throughout school and I could have easily chosen to go through school and be mollycoddled by teaching assistants and special needs departments. But instead, I took responsibility for my own learning and realised it's only when the individual takes responsibility 
for their own success, that they make success for themselves. So when I learned about Thatcherite conservatism, that spoke to me mm. in many ways. So I yeah. just felt more of a Thatcherite naturally. And later on and in later life, because I had an interest for history that grew from my early interest in politics, I became very patriotic at a young age as well. And that um, laid the seeds for my um, views on Brexit years later as well. And, and as, uh, what I find really interesting about all of that is actually you're, you're similar age to me, right? So you're, you're 30, so you're slightly older than me, but I won't rub it in. Um, <laughs> but but you, you will have grown up uh, at, a, at, a, at a period in time where the Labour Party was very, very dominant. Um, your, your activism or the point at which you became interested in politics and subsequently became active will have been still during that period of, of, of having a fairly dominant Labour Party, a popular prime minister in Tony Blair. And yet your inspiration come from someone who was not prime minister for very long after you were born, um, who was at her height, her peak, probably before you were born. Um, and yet she she was your inspiration. What What is it about... Margaret Thatcher, that inspired you uh, versus Tony Blair, who was at his peak popularity when you were when you were starting to become interested in politics. That's a, that's a good point, actually. Um, I guess, I, like, I guess, um, I mean, I didn't know much about Margaret Thatcher when I was at, when I was starting to gain an interest in politics. I wouldn't, mm. I definitely wouldn't have said I was a conservative when I was. 14. In fact, at that age, I urged my mom to vote for UKIP, to be honest, because I hated the idea of the EU back at that age, just because I knew from an early age that what history taught me was that blocks like the EU would fail in the longer term. But that's mm. that's a different point. So I guess I guess I realised I was conservative when I was 17 because, um, I mean, because I got that early interest in politics, I kind of learned about the early failings of the Labour government back then. I there were a lot of things I I disagreed with back then, and mm. even at an early age. And then I guess when I learned about Thatcherism, that's when her ideals spoke to me about individualism, about how governments can't really help you, how individuals have to take their own responsibility. I mean, mm. I, I talked to, talked about my dad being an inspiration. I mean, so is my mom as well, because after my dad left her, she stood on her own two feet and made success of herself with her banking career. She didn't mm. accept help from the state or anything. Like she made a success of herself. So I've had two really good role models in that sense, where individuals have stood on their own two feet, and that inspired a boy with special needs to do that as well. And that's why... When I finally learned about Thatcherism at the age of 17, that's when it just finally clicked for me. And linking back to Tony Blair, obviously New Labour was very much inspired by Thatcherite conservatism as well. He had to accept the Thatcherite settlement to gain power, basically, in the 90s. So Yeah, I mean, he was nowhere near as, as far to the right as Thatcher, though, was he? I mean, he's very, very centrist. I, I, I wouldn't even say he was centre-left. I would say he's almost bang in the centre. If you did an evaluation of Tony Blair's, uh, if, you, you know, if he took the political compass test, I think he'd be a Lib Dem, as it currently stands. No, yeah, I totally agree. He was very much bang on in the centre. And I found New Labour very interesting. I mean, like I say, I decided I was a Thatcherite by that age. 
I also mm-hmm. found New Labour very interesting as well, because as you say, I grew up under that government. So that's when I became politically active. And I thought Tony Blair was a genius, really, because New Labour consisted of Thatcherite conservatism, One Nation conservatism, um, some Liberal Democrat beliefs on how the Constitution should be reformed. And obviously... Everything but socialism. Yeah, precisely. It was, yeah, it was pretty much a pragmatic, yeah, pretty much a pragmatic settlement, really. And it worked. So, so, so answer me this then. Um, <clears throat> look, I, most of our listeners will know um, that I was a very active member <clears throat> of the Conservative Party for many years, was a Conservative councillor for four years, have stood in several elections. So, so, uh, I'm not a member or an activist now. I wouldn't even describe myself necessarily as a conservative now. Why do the Tory party have this, uh, have this image? Why is it perceived by so many people, particularly your age and my age, to be so evil? And, and let me put that into context. And I know that's probably a bit of a hyperbolic kind of uh, use of use of words to describe how people might perceive them. But I know the Tory party is not popular amongst people my age and our generation, the millennial generation. So it's very, very unusual for someone like you, of your age, of your generation, to, to, to be inclined in any way, shape or form to, to be supportive of conservative policies, let alone supportive of Thatcherite politics. Why do the Tory party have this image of being so evil? Um, And why do young people just not like the Tory party? (laughs) I think think a lot of it, I think the reason why our generation probably don't like the Conservatives is because obviously we have left university and gone into the world of work after the 2008 recession and a lot of them feel left behind. They can't afford they can't a lot of them can't afford to get onto the housing market a lot of them feel like they haven't got the same opportunities that their parents and grandparents did and i think a lot of people associate that with the start of thatcherism in the early 80s and they just think since then it's just made the country worse and worse and worse which is probably why you've had a surge of young people support jeremy corbyn because he's a complete he completely rejects the thatcherite settlement and also think- is, is, is he is he uh, is he a genius in that he's managed to engage corners of the electorate who would otherwise never have bothered paying any level of interest at all. Is he a genius like Tony Blair? Is he engaging corner? Is he a genius for engaging corners of the electorate that wouldn't have been interested otherwise? Do you think? He's certainly inspired a lot of young people to... Typical Tory. You can't bring yourself to describe him as a genius, can you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think if he's a genius, he would probably would have won the last two general elections. I mean, mm-hmm. I just I just think, um, unfortunately, the Labour Party has become a party that represents a minority of the population. It's, completely, it's become completely out of touch with its voters. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I feel like the only way Labour can ever win an election in the future is by being pragmatic in mm. in its response to how um, in, in its response to um, how Tory governments act and that's what Tony Blair did and and I, I like for example Labour obviously, obviously the current Labour Party they need to accept 
Brexit because a lot of their voters wanted it. The Conservatives have brought it in. We're going to have to live with it regardless of whether they like it or not. And they need to produce a, a pragmatic reaction to that, rather like Tony Blair was pragmatic in his response to satirism. And that's what caused him to win three elections in a row. Yeah, I, I, and we are going to come to Labour leadership a little bit later on in the podcast. <clears throat> but I want to talk about this this idea that Thatcherism has left a bitter taste in the mouths of millennials who feel that all of the obstacles they face in life can somehow be traced back to Thatcherism. Um, and that Thatcher, Thatcherite politics and Thatcher herself and subsequently the Tory party, I, I don't want to... I don't want to focus too much on Thatcher, but subsequently the Tory party is is only there to serve the few and not the many, to quote to quote your mate Commie Corbyn. So if, if I look at Thatcher in the 80s, um, she, she sold off a lot of the council housing stock. Yeah. Um, now, there are factions of society which believe that was absolute uh, an absolute catastrophe to the working class actually there are huge factions like my mum working of working class people who benefited from that decision Uh, and for me the fact that a conservative prime minister in Thatcher who's seen as this kind of uh, free market capitalist and is only interested in you know the one percent in society uh, hates the poor hates the working class she enabled um, so many working class people to do things historically they were never able to do. She simultaneously, I think, removed their dependency on the state, but supported them by giving them the tools and the means to get on on their own. So we sell off council housing stock, but actually we'll sell it at a, a, a reduced value so that these people who are you know, low to middle income, uh, who would never have dreamt of owning their own home, can now own their own home, and the value of that will grow for many, many years to come. The, the reduction in red tape, the, 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 the means by which people could achieve lofty heights in their career without, um, you know, without a, a, a five-star education behind them. She was symbolic of that. You know, the shopkeeper's daughter done really, really good. All of those credentials should lend itself, or lend themselves, to 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 uh, an inevitable support of the working classes for the Tory party en masse. Is the issue not the substance, but the way it communicates? Because, because if, if they communicated all of that stuff well, if, if, if they were able to iterate that working class people in this country have, have achieved have achieved um, the aspirations beyond belief, something that they would never have achieved prior to the Thatcher or without the Thatcher government. Um, if, if, they, if they articulated that in the right way and they were then building on that with, with the subsequent activity of Cameron, May and, and now Boris, surely to God, they're guaranteeing themselves the working class vote forevermore. Is, is it a communication issue? That's a communication issue. I also think it's misunderstanding as well, because I, I believe that a lot of the problems that me- many of us millennials face can be traced back to the new Labour years subsequently, because obviously under, 
obviously 2008 was a subprime mortgage crisis and Gordon Brown was is no doubt guilty of pushing subprime mortgages onto families well on pushing them onto people with a pulse basically and just trying to achieve this aspiration of trying to create a home ownership society without sustaining it properly and I think I, so I think it's definitely a communication issue we need to remind people that it was the new labors that caused the current problems that many millennials are facing as um and uh, and yeah I, I get what you're saying about selling off council houses a lot of people feel like they're not able to climb onto the housing ladder anymore but I don't think that's the issue I think the issue is we are we have a population boom and we're not but they would never have they would never there are fam- my family my mother would never have got onto that and I can I can tell you this for a fact because we've done the maths right she would never have got onto the housing ladder. She would never have owned an asset in the form of a property had Thatcher had not made that move. It unlocked so much opportunity for working class people to, to, to achieve things they would never have been able to achieve otherwise. And, and I think historically, that policy will, will be... Will be remembered as being one of the great one of the great steps out of poverty and towards aspiration that any prime minister has ever made and and yet and yet it's still so divisive and yet the tory party still don't appeal to um working class people do you think you're the choice of leader i want to say you're because i'm talking about you as a tory but do, do you think the choice of leadership figures over the years has covered the party in glory. Did, did, did people really like David Cameron? Were people really that enthralled by Theresa May? And if you look at the front bench, Jacob Rees-Mogg, Rishi Sunak, uh, you know, all people who, who are hugely privileged and come from largely the financial sector, th- th- does that hinder the Tory party's appeal? I don't think it hinders the Tory party's appeal. I think it hinders the um the appeal for people of all backgrounds to go into politics because before during christmas last year i read a book called why we get the wrong politicians and labor has just as much of a problem with attracting the privileged few and i think isabel hardman's book is great because it outlines what we can do to make politics more accessible to people so for example <clears throat> it's very easy for someone with a lot of money to give up their time and go campaigning in poli- and to become an mp because They've got the money to do it. But if you want to, if you want to, um, if you're from a low-paid job and you want to go into politics and change society for the better, which is great, and which is what we should be doing. There's no, there's no, um, there's no way that political parties can financially benefit. Financial support. Yeah. There's no yeah. way people can get that money yeah. back for it. It's a huge, it's a huge task. To- and to become an MP, yeah. they just don't get the support from the party. Yeah, yeah, it is, and uh, you know, for me, uh, uh, it, it, I wanted to be an MP for a long time. I, I don't know, um, uh, but the, the ability to, as you say, first of all, establish yourself in the in in any party, Labour or Conservative, takes years. So the seats that are actually winnable that will make you become an MP or mean you're likely to become an MP are very, very hard to get. Um, especially if you're not well connected within the past and you're relatively new. Second of all, 
taking time out six months to carry out a campaign, 12 months to carry out a campaign, largely will, will, will mean you have to take some time off work on an unpaid basis. And if you're a nurse or if you're a builder or a panel beater or a postie, that's really, really difficult, isn't it? And consequently, representation is only going to be by those who can afford it and those who have the time. So we're back to this argument of, well, it's generally um, uh, privileged older people who become MPs because they're the only ones who can actually afford it. How do we change that? I think I'd refer back to what Isabel Hardman's book, Why We Get the Wrong Politicians. I mean, you definitely need to read the book twice if you really enjoy it, because I can't remember everything she said, but I know she alluded to the Conservative Party has brought in some sort of gradual scheme whereby they can help people who have given up time and money to become an MP. But I do think there needs to be some sort of financial compensation for people to do it so that if they lose, especially if they lose a seat as well, like that's even more financially devastating than if you win, because if you win, you know, you're going to get a huge, a 65 grand a year or 70 grand a year salary at the end of it. But if you lose, you get nothing back. So there definitely needs to be some form of financial compensation among all the parties to basically give people more incentive into politics and also i think we definitely need more primaries among all the political parties my conservative association in 2013 had a primary and it was great to be able to enable people from all backgrounds to participate in the selection process because you can argue that political parties the membership of political parties are not always representative of society so if you allow more ordinary people to enter the process you get they're able to select better politicians, I guess. And that's why it works so well in the US, I think. Yeah, it does. I, my view on you know, the organisational structures within parties is, is pretty scathing, to be honest. And I can talk openly about this because I'll probably never become a, a Conservative member again. Um, I found the, the voluntary sector of the party lacked any form of governance. There were people in position by definition of the fact they've been there for many, many years. Therefore, they had a right to that position. Um, All parties have their factions left and right. Um, And so you had to be fairly ideologically aligned to that individual. Let's say it's an association chairman um, to be able to to get on, to get onto a management committee, to to get onto um, a candidate's list. I found that there were many, many people making many, many decisions which were bad for the party, choosing the individual that they felt, I'm talking in terms of selecting candidates, choosing the individual they felt uh, they felt should be chosen because they, they agree with me, they're behind me, rather than they're actually going to win this seat. I mean, I, I was a member of the Exeter Conservative Association, and we chose some candidates there who, you know, to their credit, worked jolly, jolly hard. But if it was a business in the commercial sector, in the private sector, or, or, or in the media or the press, you would never, they would never have got past the first interview. The only reason they got past that first interview is, is, is what I call nepotism, yeah? People know people know people. So there's, a, there's actually no structure, um, no strong governance within any political party. I, I don't know a great deal about the other parties, but I know a little bit. I don't think there's any particular governance which which kind of stamps that out, which stops that nepotism. Uh, and that's where we get into, well, 
Labour Party, Tory Party has as a parliament, they're just one big bloody boys club. Because the people choosing the candidates to go and represent constituents in elections um, are, are, are chosen based on based on whether they're your mate or not, and whether they agree with you or not. And, and we all know, particularly those of us who have worked in the private sector, that that just doesn't work, does it? Well, no, you're right. It doesn't. It doesn't work in the private sector. And yeah, the politics has certainly given that people the image where by, I mean, I heard, um, I heard a phrase that once describes the US Congress about how, I can't remember the phrase's word exact, the, the phrase's exact wording, but I can just remember it saying, it's saying something like these people have failed in all other walks of life. So they go into politics because they're better at nothing else. And so I, I, yeah. do, I do get your point there. They've, clearly politics has had that image for a long time because that is quite an old phrase from what I remember. So, so I, I do get mm. your point there. Um, I think... It, it's, 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 I mean, when I, when I was, when I was uh, in the Exeter Association, so I stood in one election as a 20-year-old, I think, and I was bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and did whatever I was told mm. to do. And like everyone who goes through that kind of political journey, you you develop your own ideology, which might well be conservative in nature, but it might sit left or right uh, of the Conservative Party. Uh, and you start to stand firm as your confidence in, in that ideology grows. Um, and I somehow became the treasurer, I think, because nobody else wanted to be the treasurer. And honestly, it was like, I don't know whether anyone's ever seen House of Cards, particularly the, the British version of House of Cards from the 90s, it was just like that. There were people trying to co-opt other people onto management committees. So when there was a motion, they could get more votes in their favor. Um, there were private email groups going on uh, about how we can, you know, how can we shaft the chairman and, and, and get them out? It was, it was people taking over the Twitter account of the association and posting vile things about the 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 chairman of the association again to try and shaft them and get them out i mean it's really murky stuff it is it? i mean politics is, has always been a dirty business probably since the days of julius caesar it's because lit, of that literally a stab uh, a backstabbing business but i'm sorry to hear you've had such a bad experience with your association i mean i've had quite a Oh, well, I mean, I'm not, I'm not too much of a snitch. I've had quite a good experience <laughs> in mine, and I'll give Mid Worcestershire Concerned Association credit any time. And I'm not just saying this in case any of them are listening, but I, you know, I've been quite lucky in my association. That's why I've been a member for nearly 13 years now. So, yeah. No, I, do you know what? To provide balance, I stood in an election in Plymouth, and the Plymouth, Sutton, and, and Devonport um, constituency were second to none. They really were. But I think it exposes my point in that one association can be so wildly different to another one, which is just 40 miles down the road. Um, it's because there's no framework and no governance and, and, and no, real, no real structure to the way the party is managed on the voluntary side. But actually, people on the voluntary side are the ones making some of the biggest decisions. Um, but I want to move on. I could talk about that all night, actually. Um, but I want to move on um, to talk about um, COVID-19 government's response. So, um, Boris Johnson. Now, I've been... There's a bit of an echo. I don't know whether, uh, whether you've got me on loudspeaker there. But I've been quite surprised pleasantly by how 
I want to say satisfied and supportive the general public have been of Boris Johnson's response to COVID-19. Um, in some cases, I've seen some people do a complete 180 who at the beginning of the epidemic couldn't stick him um, because he didn't take us into lockdown quickly enough, et cetera, et cetera. But, but as, as the virus developed and as the landscape changed, he, um, he tended to develop a little bit more support. How would you rate the government's response, Boris's response, at the beginning of the crisis? And how does that compare to today? I mean, I'm one of these people who's probably guilty of, have, who's, uh, who's, um, guilty of having their views changed by what's happening. I mean, COVID-19 is something that we don't know anything about. And, it's, and as you've said in one of your previous Facebook posts, it's very easy to shoot from the hip when you don't really know what you're talking about. So I've certainly had my views my views have certainly evolved over time as well. I thought Boris did a really good job to start with. However, as we've learned more over time, it's quite clear that there are some actions he and other world leaders, to be fair, could have taken sooner. Like, for example, like for example yeah. bringing in social distancing sooner, testing people coming back from that cruise line from Japan as soon as they got it. Uh, it's, and then, and now... I mean, obviously, the UK's death rate has gone up to 19,000. Uh, I can't remember the exact figure, but it's over 19,000. And... Yeah, and, and they said, to be fair, I think Chris Whitty, chief medical officer, said four weeks ago, you know, under 20,000 deaths would be a good achievement. I, I, I don't mean that to be crass, but, but that would be rather better. So I think 20,000 is the benchmark, mm. isn't it, really? Um, if it goes above 20,000, I think more questions are going to be answered. I think questions need to be answered either way. We need to definitely see what we can learn from this. And I really hope we do learn from it because um, I heard a phrase the other day that the problem with history is that we we never learn from it. So I, th- I really hope I really hope we mm. do. Um, yeah, I certainly think Boris did the right thing to start with when my knowledge on this area was very limited. But the more I've read the more I've, regardless of the fact whether I'm a conservative or not, I've just looked at this objectively and I just think there are some things they still need to do and in hindsight they probably should have done sooner. And and is, is, the, is, the, is the level of public support still what it was three weeks ago? Or do you think it's dying off? I think, I think it's still there from what I gather anyway. I mean, it's certainly still there. Um, a lot of people seem to be abiding by the lockdown now, which is good in that, in terms of what the government wants to achieve. Um, I personally have my own reservations about the stay-at-home order. But like I say, um, okay. I just think, as someone who believes in individual liberty, again, going back to my Thatcherite roots, um, I just think, for me, the stay-at-home order just punishes a lot of healthy people who are responsible and know what they're doing. I think like I say, it's easy to speak in hindsight about this whole situation because a lot of us have never experienced this before. But I just think mm. really they should have limited public gatherings a lot sooner. And then we might not. Have, and I do think the mainstream media pressured the government into this hasty lockdown without planning for it properly because now you're getting... Because obviously the government's only recently developed a strategy to help domestic abuse victims. They still haven't closed the board the borders either or tested people flying into the uk 
and I think that's part of the reason why the number of cases keeps climbing. Um, I said in my article, the other, one of my articles the other day, that New Zealand's did a great job in closing the borders from the very beginning, and they've gone down to just five new infections a day or something like that. Yeah, the closing of the border thing is interesting because, you know, in this kind of tribal world of politics, people are so quick, I think, to point a finger and call you a name, slap a label on you for being a racist. Um, You know, to the point where actually the word racist is beginning to lose its meaning because there are certain people mainly on the left who describe everything as racist. Do you think that's what prevented the government Boris Johnson, the prime minister, from taking the decision to close the borders. Because comparably, Russia closed its border. You know, I'm not suggesting Russia's kind of a, a, <laughs> a, a beacon of, yeah, a beacon of, um, of positivity or, or, or aspiration in terms of politics. But Russia closed its borders very, very quickly, minimal cases. I think Singapore closed its borders very quickly, minimal cases. Mongolia, again, I'm not in any way suggesting Mongolia is comparable to the UK, but it's more about the process, closed their borders, very, very few cases. Donald Trump, very, very early to close the borders, despite a fair amount of criticism. Um, And it's definitely had a positive effect in the States. Is is the fear of being demonised what might have prevented Boris from closing the border? Because you're right, it still hasn't. No, I agree. I think problem i mean part of the reason why i had reservations about voting for boris in the leadership election last year is because i've always thought i mean for me thatcherism is about principle and i don't always see and i haven't always seen that in boris in the past so i do think he does pander to populism in a lot of ways and i do think that's probably i mean i'm not saying it is uh, it's certainly an interesting observation it might that might be part of the reason why he hasn't done it but the fact that pretty patel who is of indian descent has argued for closing the borders that should carry a lot more substance at the end of the day because she is from an immig- you know an immig- uh, yeah she she has a background with immigration so i don't understand why the government ignored her because this is someone from of indian descent arguing that we should close the borders why aren't we listening to her <clears throat> but i think boris's issue is he he has a his his character and the way he is viewed has really really changed over time. I I remember when he was London mayor, no one really had a bad word to say about him. But I think at that point he was just the London mayor in many people's eyes. Uh, I'm not in any way trying to you know undervalue the, the 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 importance of that role. But there was a limit to how much damage they felt he could do. Right? He doesn't have his finger on the red yeah. button. Um. He then went through the Brexit campaign. He took the decision to lead the Brexit campaign. I think many people were relieved. I think without him, it would never have happened. Um, I think many people felt, you know, he was a bit of a charlatan because there were there were two articles I think he drafted um, for publish. One was in favour of Remain, the other in favour of uh, Brexit. He then, during the... Uh, during the, the campaign, was painted out to be a liar. I'm thinking 350 million for the NHS. I, I, I dispute that he ever made that promise, mm. by the way. <clears throat> um, uh, there was a lot of talk about immigration and what's viewed as anti immigrant rhetoric. Um, and so, so people, are, uh, oh, let's not forget as well, uh, 
comments from his days as a journalist, uh, picking in his with watermelon smiles, for mm-hmm. example. So he, he, he is characterised as being racist by many. Some of his activity and his rhetoric in the past probably is, probably means he's worthy of that label to a degree. How, however, however it was intended, it was still racist language. Um, and so now he's prime minister with many people very, very quick to say he's a racist and try to point towards evidence, the minute he says we're closing the borders, he's kind of proved their point, hasn't he? I know technically he hasn't um, and logically he hasn't, but but the media, uh, people on the left, his political opponents and anyone who was undecided would, or, or you know, kind of ambivalent about him, would probably take that to be, yet another piece of rhetoric or activity that exposes Boris Johnson as a racist. Don't you think? Or have I got that wrong? I see what you mean. Um, He is prime minister of this country and I think the evidence speaks itself in places like New Zealand where if you close the borders from the very beginning you you do reduce the death death rate of COVID-19. So he needs... I mean, to, to be fair, what I've respected about Boris in recent years is that Obviously, he was London mayor, like you said. London is a very pro-Remain city, and he chose to vote campaign for Brexit, so he took that unpopular decision and annoyed a lot of his voter base. And yeah, yeah true. done all right. And, uh, <laughs> I respected him in that sense. He's become a lot more of a convictionist in recent years. So I just feel like now that he's prime minister, he has basically got to do what's best for the country and. Margaret Thatcher always did what she thought was best for the country, whether she people loved her for it or hated her for it. And and again, it alludes back to the point that the uh, the book I read, Why We Get the Wrong Politicians Made, do we get politicians that just care too much about what what people think instead of just making the right decisions instead of not sticking to their convictions? Do we need more conviction politicians or better faster politicians in that sense? Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think I can't help every time I see the briefings, and he hasn't been at the last last couple of weeks worth of briefings because he's been terribly, terribly ill, and thankfully he's made a recovery. Um, I, I can't help but think every time I watch him at those briefings, how much more confident, how much safer, how much more in control I would feel if it was David Cameron talking behind that podium, if it was Tony Blair talking behind that podium. Uh, he just doesn't give me confidence. And, and I like Boris Johnson. I like a, a lot of what he's got to stand for. Dislike uh, a lot uh, of stuff too. And, and I think leadership election, I probably, if I was a member, I probably would have voted for Jeremy Hunt, as I've probably shared with you in the past. But I look at him behind that podium and I think, I'm just not convinced. I'm just not convinced. Do you share my view that because he's he's quite radical, because he is, in, in inverted commas, quite extreme in the way, or bombastic is probably a better term, um, he doesn't give a level of confidence in the way that he speaks and the way that he portrays himself and the way that he delivers facts. He's a bit of a bumbling fool. David Cameron was always hugely articulate. Uh, Tony Blair, always hugely articulate. When I hear Rishi Sunak up there, I feel a, an enormous level of confidence 
don't feel that with Boris. Is that a problem for him? <clears throat> or is I it part of his appeal? appeal and I, I, think, um, I think it's more important to judge politicians by the substance of their actions as opposed to the way they deliver their words. I mean, for example, Ronald Reagan, George W. Bush weren't exactly eloquent speakers, but they certainly stood up for what they believed in, whether it made them popular or not. Mm. And so, yeah, I, and that's what, that's what impressed me about Boris from the beginning. He certainly, he, he certainly took the lead when, when the COVID-19 threat became more and more apparent. But like I say, the more we learn about this situation, the more we learn that the government hasn't got everything right. And I'm certainly in that camp as well. So, Has any government around the world got everything right, do you think? Can we point to anywhere and say they handled things brilliantly? Because because you can look at New Zealand and say, yeah, they did some things well, but the population is small. Yeah, um, I, you know, I could point to many, many African countries that don't have the level of death um, or the death toll that we've had in the UK. There's no way on God's earth that some of those very corrupt governments in those African countries are responding as well as our own government. So, so I don't think death, to, it sounds awful, doesn't it, to trivialise it in this way, and I don't mean to do so, but I don't think death toll is the single most important and common, um, common figure, fact, that we should judge a government's competence in their response or not, is it? Because there are so many different factors. Yeah, you know, more people travel to the UK. We have a higher population of um, immigration than than the likes of Africa. More people travel here for holidays than they would Africa. More people travel here for business than they would Africa or, or perhaps New Zealand. So it, it's not just down to closing the borders, is no, it? No, you're right. There, there's there's a huge amount of factors as well. I mean. For example, the government's starting to roll out testing, which is great. I'm glad to see them doing that. And obviously, there's been a lot of coverage on care homes. Um, a lot of people are dying in care homes as well and suffering in general and how they haven't had testing. So, is that, is that government's... I want to sound brutal. Is that government's I mean, responsibility? Particularly, I take issue with this a little bit. Because I, I see people, I don't know, I, I shared yesterday on Facebook, it was a, it was like a meme, right? And it, it's a bit snooty, really. It's a bit snobbish, but it's quite funny, and most people would agree. It was a picture of a, a BBC, uh, uh, BBC, like, anchor in the newsroom, uh, and the caption below was, and we're now going to go to our scientific, chief scientific expert, Tracy, from Barnsley, <laughs> or from Facebook on COVID nineteen, and there's a lady sat in front of a live laugh love sticker. Um, and I take issue because everyone thinks they're a scientist. Everyone has an opinion on this. Everyone thinks they could do a better job than the prime minister. The reality is, um, most people in this situation would follow the advice. So, so that's what dictates the response. Um, but, but I take issue with the care homes thing in that most people on, on my Facebook, for example, are banging on about the fact that isn't it a disgrace that um, care homes don't have the right PPE, care homes haven't had testing. Um, Piers Morgan, who I normally love, is irritating the <laughs> crap out of me um, with him constantly pursuing this line. Is it really government's responsibility to provide private care homes with PPE, with testing capability? Yeah, you know, they haven't provided my multinational private organization 
they haven't provided the employees of the small estate agent down the road um, with PPE. They haven't provided the small air conditioning engineering firm who've still got to go and maintain air conditioning equipment in vital uh, properties with PPE and testing. So why why are care homes why are care homes given that special treatment, or why do people think they should get that level of special treatment from the government? I don't understand. I mean, yeah, I, I only brought up care homes because it's an example of like, because obviously the way the media obviously portray it is like yeah. a failure on part of the government. And and I, I see what you mean about the mainstream media. I, I do have my reservations about the way they behave about all this. Like they've obviously pressured the government into a lockdown. Okay. And then since they did it, they then exposed all the failures of the lockdown. And I, I, I see what you mean. It's, it's definitely a lot. Well, there was a piece in the... Was it the Times or the Telegraph, which which was meant to be an expose? <clears throat> Boris Johnson didn't attend Cobra meetings. Boris Johnson didn't act quickly enough. It was a real hatchet job. I don't know whether oh, no, you read about it. And, and bonded, which is very very uncharacteristic. So they obviously felt. But but again, this is where I take issue with 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 people who don't fucking understand how these things work. Trying to cast a, an aspersion, trying to make a make a decision based on no fact whatsoever. The truth is, you know, when you're when you're the leader of a large organization, I, I'm, a, I'm a senior leader, director level in my own organization, you know, the, 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 the organization by which I'm employed, massive organization. I have a lot of people who work for me, 180 people, um, all of whom are currently wrapped up in responding to um, the impact of COVID-19 on our customers, right? attending every single daily COVID briefing that we have because I'm one person, I have a series of leaders who report into me and support me in delivering that. It's this expectation that the Prime Minister should have been at every COBRA meeting um, and that the fact that he wasn't is somehow an indictment on his capability. The reality is Prime Ministers don't attend and chair every COBRA. It's chaired by the relevant Secretary of State. And in any organisation across the world, People delegate because the man or woman at the top cannot do everything. Richard Branson runs the organization, but he doesn't fly the planes, is the comparison I've been trying to draw recently, albeit it might be a bad one given the, given the current set of circumstances for them. Why, why are people, uh, why are the media, I suppose, stooping to those debts, stating stuff they know to be hugely misleading, why are they stooping to those debts? What, what, what's, what's their purpose? What are they hoping to achieve? Because if anything, even if, even if that wasn't a depth to stoop, right, even if that was absolutely the expectation that Boris would have been at every COBRA meeting and Boris should be all over every single detail, if that was the expectation uh, and that's what one should expect of a prime minister, why did they not wait until perhaps after this pandemic had passed because surely to God, they recognise their time is much better focused on supporting people out of it. And then we do the post. No, I totally agree. I mean, as a journalist, I do believe in the public interest. So I do believe if any government fails us in any way, then the public have a right to know about it. But I, I see what your point. I think the mainstream media probably, ex probably, I must stress, exploiting that public interest Um do you, do you think it would be, I, I, I'm 
and it's very rarely I'll say this, but I agree with Corbyn when he says the media are unduly harsh on him and unduly, unduly uh, uh, sensitive towards the Tory party. Uh, you and I may disagree on that. Feel free to point out if you do. Um, I think if Corbyn was in this position, though, he would get a much harder rap. Even if he made exactly the same decisions, I do think he would fall victim to worse smear and worse depths to which the media would plummet to batter him. I do believe yeah, that. I mean, do you? Yeah, I, I, I mean, it's easy to speak in hindsight. They, I mean, you might you might have a fair point there. To be fair, but um, I, I just I do believe the media, regardless of which outlet it is has a duty to expose governments when they fail, but the Cobra point, you are right, it has been totally exploited to make it like the government's been inco- deliberately incompetent when it hasn't. Government... No, it's bullshit. It, you know, to, to speak bluntly, it, it's it's a lot of bullshit because because it, it's got no basis in fact at all. Other than, other than the fact that he might not have been there, okay, true, the fact that they that the perception they are trying to create is that he should have been there and he wasn't because he was off, I don't know, dealing with some personal issue is totally false, isn't it? You wouldn't expect him to have been there. And I, and I, I find that so bloody frustrating. Uh, just, just while we're talking about world leaders, and I don't want to talk about this subject for too long, um, but Trump, how's Trump faring at the moment? I think... I think- my my opinion on the way Trump has handled COVID-19 has been quite balanced, I'd say. I mean, he was right to ban Chinese tourists and visitors into the US from the very beginning of COVID-19 escalating. I don't think he took it seriously enough from the beginning. And like a lot of world leaders didn't again. Um, I think he was right to delegate it to Mike Pence because, like you say, with Boris being prime minister, he's got so much to deal with as it is. So he was probably right to delegate it to Mike Pence. Obviously, he's making a lot of outlandish statements at the moment, like the one he said about in the press. Did did he say inject yourself with disinfectant or something? Or did I? Was that just a complete misquote? I've not actually listened to what he said, but there was something around disinfectant getting rid of the disease or something, wasn't there? I don't want to quote him accurately because I didn't hear it properly either. I just saw what the... (laughs) <laughs> the BBC reported on it, and obviously the BBC loved what he said. So, because uh, it gives them great, it gives them more coverage at the end of the day to expose in what what they like to think exposed Trump as this incompetent buffoon again. But um, obviously, yeah. in a number of death, which he's so he's he's bombastic. He says stupid fucking things. He acts like a dick, but he's definitely not a buffoon. He's a very, very agree. sharp man. And, uh, yeah, he's, an, he's another politician that is, um, as George W. Bush liked to say, misunderestimated. So, um, so yeah. I see what you're saying there. Um, however, the number of deaths in the US is climbing up. Um, yeah, I mean, Trump's response has been very hit and miss. I do totally get where he's coming from, where the economy does need to be reopened at some point. I mean, 22 million people in the US are unemployed or furloughed, and that's worrying. 
in itself. And the US is the world's biggest economy. So I totally get where he's coming from, where he needs to reopen the economy at some point. Uh, and this is where this is where I think his opportunity to shine exists, because because for all I think his approach to um, to public relations generally, press relations is shocking. And I don't agree with probably 45 percent of what comes out of his mouth. If we're talking about gun control or climate change, when it comes to economics, I think there's no better person you could have at the helm than Donald Trump. Um, I mean, the economy pre this in the US was was reaching heights and, and breaking barriers it's never broken historically before. And and it's directly related to the work that he's done, right? Uh, you know, absolutely no question. All of the evidence supports that. So so whilst I think there will be, to your point, I think quite a balanced, um, balanced review, I think half people, half the people I talk to think he he he's done a shit job. Uh, and his behaviour in press conferences um, has been uh, outlandish and unacceptable. The other half of people I talk to say it's great to see him standing up for himself. It's great to see him uh, pushing back on the media. Did you see, by the way, the presentation he gave to the media? So, so he was trying to essentially say, "You're now saying I acted too slowly three months ago." You said I wasn't. Uh, I was acting too quickly. Here's evidence of that. I, did, I mean, I thought that was a fucking masterstroke, to be honest with you. Um, but but I think when it comes to building, rebuilding the economy, I, I think he will. He will cut through the diver. He will uh, break down walls <laughs> and build them on the border at the same time. Um, and he will he will just slash all red tape to get the economy moving. If there's one bit of comfort I take from Donald Trump being leader of the free world at this time, it's that you know when when America does well, Britain does well, and vice versa. Um, and he will get the economy back on its feet in record time. I would almost yeah, I take totally agree. Back. I totally agree. I mean, he foresaw the 2008 recession because he uh, he invested in the housing market in 2006, I think. If I, and so. Obviously, people say, well, I don't yep. trust him in the economy because he's been bankrupt quite a few times. It's, well, then you think, well, surely he's learned from those experiences then how to be, how to manage businesses better. So that we give him, so he's got that mixed background, really. To, that's perfect to run the world's biggest economy in a, in a lot of ways. So, so yeah, I, I totally agree. And also, I think, you know, some could argue this would play into Biden's hands, but Biden also has a very dodgy history with China and the Trump campaign will no doubt exploit that this year. So I think, I think the U S election. Yeah. I think Biden's toast. I think Biden is absolutely toast. I think we're going to see uh, a, a, a landslide in this presidential I election. The, I really do. I think, I think Biden's going to be absolutely uh, battered. Bernie Sanders, I would agree with you. Um, I do think Biden's still, has some advantages over Hillary, but again, it's his presentation that worries me. And I think if he if it does become a close election, it'll only be because he carries so much of the Obama vote. It won't be other factors. But then he also represents the establishment that American voters rejected in 2016. So it's going to be a it's going to be a very interesting election, I think. Indeed, indeed. So along the theme of Trump, uh, um. I was having a conversation with a work colleague the other day, and I said, um, 
much to the dismay of many of my Facebook followers, actually, as you would have seen from my video the other day. Um, I think China needs to feel, and when I, when I say China, by the way, I'm talking about the Chinese government right, and the Chinese state. They need to feel a level of accountability for, for this pandemic. It started in China, fact. How it started is up for debate. I'm not one for conspiracy theories, but there are some people who believe it was man-made in a lab, others who believe it come from a wet market. It doesn't really matter. Um, China needs to feel a level of accountability. I feel confident that Trump and Boris have a sufficient partnership and sufficient character to make them feel that level of accountability. Should China feel a level of accountability and what should I that totally agree. Look they should like? feel a level of accountability for this. I think Merkel did the right thing the other day by sending them a bill paying for the reparations for this. So, um, so there's that. We should also, obviously, with Brexit, we talked about a, a trade deal with China back then when it, when the result came when the result happened. I don't think we should anymore. I think a lot of countries should pull their manufacturing out of China, which I do believe places like Japan are doing. Um, yeah, there's definitely got to be huge economic consequences. Do you think that will impact, though, unfairly impact the people of China? Isn't there, I mean, I mean, look, most of them, a good number of them, live in desperate poverty anyway. Do we really want to punish the people of China yet further for? for the mistakes of its that's a valid communist point. government. Not many people have explored. Um, I don't, yeah, that's a very valid point, I think. I, I totally agree with what you're saying. Um, I mean, oh, well, yeah, that's a very valid point, actually. How, how, do you, how, do you, how do you find that balance, I suppose? Because, you know, clearly the way to, I, I don't, it depends on your stance, doesn't it? If, if accountability, means hitting them where it hurts then the easiest way to do that is through economic withdrawal from that country yeah logistically how likely is that i mean i mean do we have elsewhere in the world the manufacturing capability of china for example i suspect not so so whilst it might hurt them it might slow produ production down significantly and that can have an economic impact on our shores because businesses can't get the right materials. I'm thinking electronic and, and technology businesses, for example. Um, you know, a lot of techno technological manufacturing takes place in China, comes out of China. So I think that might adversely impact our economy and the businesses within the UK. Um, but certainly it's probably the biggest, the biggest trump card, pardon the pun, that you have. Um, so there's definitely a debate there, isn't there, as to as to you know whether whether it's really who's who's really going to feel um, the consequences of that. Yes, we might hurt China, but will we do untold damage to ourselves in 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 that process? Do you think? I think I, th I think it's uh, well. I think I certainly think uh, the Chinese government should certainly be penalised for a lot of what's happened, as opposed to China as a whole. Um, how we do that is beyond me, and I, mm. yeah, that's completely out of my depth, unfortunately, as to how we produce a coherent response there. Because I just think, no matter what we, yeah, it's unprecedented, isn't it? I hate to keep using that word, but 
it, it's totally unprecedented. And, and our issue is we haven't nipped this in the bud sooner. So, so if we look at SARS, swine flu, uh, I think bird flu, all came out of China. I'm, I'm not totally sure on bird flu. So, so I caveat that with um, to be confirmed. Uh, but, but we've had a pattern of this. Um, I think we've been scared to address it because actually it's a cultural challenge as much as it is a political one. You know, wet markets and the food Chinese people consume um, in their everyday lives, uh, that's become just normal, just a normal part of their diet, is, is a cultural habit. Number one, breaking cultural habits is really, really difficult. Number two, it's very difficult to say you need to break your cultural habit, parts of your culture are bad, without being accused of being xenophobic in some way. I mean, I, I think it's totally okay to say some cultures are better than others, by the way, and some cultures have practices which are better than others. American gun culture is terrible. British culture to guns is much better. Some cultures are better than others. We shouldn't be afraid to say that. It's a very tricky one because I, how do you tell a government to outlaw a piece of culture? It's, 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 it's not impossible, but it's very, very hard. How do, you, how do you withdraw economically from China when it is so powerful and so much of your economy relies on it? That's a real challenge. Politically, is probably one of the easier areas to to. to to challenge and, and you, you're right you know sending them a bill for for the reparations yeah it's quite a savvy move how likely are they to pay it i'll suggest probably unlikely I, I don't think the chinese government are particularly forgiving um and what's the long-term impact on international relations i think the only way it's going to work is if every country stands together if if china feels literally the weight of the whole world it will, it will, I think, find itself backed into a corner and we'll need to make some meaningful change. I, I don't like the idea that economic withdrawal will cause suffering for the people of China. I don't like the idea that it will cause suffering for the people and the economy of this country and other nations around the world. Is there any circumstance, do you think, in which the whole world, perhaps not North Korea, we can discount them for a second, that the whole world would come together in its response to China, or are we not going to see that? I think simply too divisive politically. Well, I think Trump has been tooting the China horn from the very beginning, and one could argue, one could argue he was absolutely right. Yes. And he's been talking about bringing back American manufacturing and everything like that, and in a lot of ways he was right from the very beginning. And I really... I'd like to see more world leaders respond that way. I certainly don't think a Brexit, a post-Brexit China deal is going to happen. So I think we're already beginning to see slithers of that sort of response. Mm. Okay. Um, final question. Your Prime Minister, the country opens up, the pandemic passes, Matt Snape has been sworn in to 10 Downing Street, What's the first thing you do to get the economy moving? I would refer to um, some of the job reforms that the IA, the IEA talked about and which I quoted in one of my articles. I think, I think the priority is to 
make sure that we can find a way to get job creation going again and and then that way we can get more and more people back into work and paying the taxes that we need to get the economy going again so i can't remember what those job reforms were admittedly off the top of my head but um it's a very good iea article and i think i i praise the iea in speaking uh i mean by the iea i mean the institute of economic affairs i give them a lot I was, I, just, I was just going to ask you that question because I, I didn't <laughs> yeah, have a clue. The Institute of Economic Affairs, I think they, I definitely listen to a lot of them for common sense when it comes to getting the economy again. Because I'm not a policy expert, admittedly, so I'd want to, I'd want to trust people who can make those, you know, who can help me come out with those decisions. And I think the Institute of Economic Affairs did a really good article on how we should focus on job reform instead of. And job creation instead of just increasing taxes or bringing back some sort of post World War Two Keynesian state. Well, let's hope Boris Johnson um, follows that advice. And if you do ever get to the lofty heights of number ten, you'll come back on this podcast and we can reflect on this very moment. Um, Matt Snake, you've been a fantastic guest. Thank you so much for giving up your time. Uh, always hard that the first podcast in a whole series, uh, especially the inaugural one for the podcast uh, generally. So really, really appreciate your time. Fantastic. Thank you very much for having me, James. I very much enjoyed it. So I'd definitely come back on again. Great. Thank you. That was Matt Snake, journalist and Tory councillor. Next week, We'll be talking to Ashley Meads, who's one of our NHS heroes on the front line fighting the pandemic and a vegan activist. So I think they could get very, very 